to be with you guys. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up in John chapter 17. Uh, we're in the Gospel of John this morning. So, um, how many of you love Jesus? Yeah. Woo! All right, let's try that again. How many of you love Jesus? There you go. Make some noise. There you go. John 17, we're learning about the name and fame of Jesus Christ. And during this season, we're prepping for really the two largest events ever in human history. It's the, the cross of Christ, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday, the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. And Jesus separates himself from every other world religion and, and key player that's ever touched a foot on our earth. And so what I want to do this morning is just kind of share with you a little bit about kind of my experience on how I came to faith in Christ and then studied world religions. And then we're going to jump into John 17 this morning and look at what's been called the high priestly prayer or the, the, the prayer of Jesus. And so I came to faith in Christ at 18 years old in Colorado. It was a, my life was a train wreck at that point in time. It was 1997, and I went on this expedition into the mountains, and there was an opportunity where everybody said, you know, the guide said, hey, you're going to go off into the wilderness, connect with God. Um, and I was underneath the stars and overwhelmed by the power and the presence of really a God as creator. And in that experience, I, I surrendered my life right then and there. I said, God, take over my life, change my life. And I had one of those stories that you've heard about, a very radical shift, an immediate conversion experience where everything that was in the past had changed. And the Bible says that he can remove a heart of stone and then turn it into a heart of flesh. The Bible says that he, he brings new life. The Bible says that you're born again. I got born again. That's what happened. And I came back to Little Rock, and I began to share with all my friends and family that I was following after Jesus Christ, and they thought I was crazy. I lost all my friends, and then I had to start and make new friends. And so here I am on Friday nights on the floors of my room praying. Somebody handed me this random CD called Keith Green. And if you're old, you know who I'm talking about. If you're young, you have no idea. Basically, he was a hippie guy that loved Jesus and played music, kind of like a Christian version of Bob Dylan, maybe. And it was incredible. I was learning a lot about Jesus, and I was growing about Jesus, and then something happened. I started to question everything. I started to question. I thought maybe this whole thing was just like a, a spiritual experience, and it was a high, but there's going to be a low. And I really don't even have a, a real definitive response for my faith. It's just I believe in Jesus, and he changed my life. That's, that's all I could tell you. I didn't have a reason for why I believe why, what, what I believe. How many of you have ever been there before where you begin to question your faith a little bit? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's very normal. And so what I decided to do is study world religion. I went into the University of Arkansas there at Little Rock, and they had a world religion class. And I thought, you know what, a, a secular university, what better place to learn about religion? And so uh, that was sarcasm. But so... <laughs> The point is, is I went in there, and I did, and it was very much a neutral position. The professor did an incredible job presenting all sorts of different arguments about the existence of God from different perspectives, Eastern, Western religion, and the two players that we looked at specifically were really, in comparison uh, to Jesus, was Buddha and Muhammad. And so what happened was, I had this professor named Dr. Ember, and uh, he was an incredible man, older fella, glasses, long hair, a big beard, and he did such a great job. I always wondered, are you Buddhist? Are you, are you Muslim? 
are you Jewish? Are you Christian? I could never figure out what he was because he did such a great job on teaching. And um, so anyway, towards the end of the semester, I found out that he actually was Jewish when we were all wrapped up. I asked him what he was, and he said, I'm not going to tell you until the end of the semester. And at the very end, he said, you know what, I'll tell you. And I said, what are you? He said, Jewish. I said, okay. Um, thankfully, your pastor, through all of that class, I got straight A's in all of the papers, all of the exams. I mean, you, do, you wouldn't want a pastor that failed religion course. That would be pretty bad. <laughs> and so, thankfully, God was work at work in the makings of a pastor, preacher, teacher during that time frame. Uh, very young, uh, you know, 19 years old. I'm, I'm beginning to form the beginnings of my strength of my faith. And I wanted to have a far more uh, robust faith because the Bible says you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Well, the heart and soul is definitely emotion and connection there, but what about the mind? And I hadn't figured out how to really love God with my mind to the greatest ability, and I think it's a tragedy if you're a Christian today and you've f kind of checked your intellect at the door and just blindly follow uh, the faith that you profess. Um, you need to have a, an, an intellectual understanding of why we believe what we believe. And so I was on this quest for truth, uh, looking at Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, and everybody else. And long story short, at the end of the semester, the professor said, hey, uh, Ryan, you can write your final exam for on anything you want as it pertains to the subjects that we've covered. And I said, I've got a great topic. And I was an evangelist from a very young age. I always wanted to share Jesus. And I started praying for my professor, Dr. Ember. And I submitted my paper when I was done, and he read it, and it said, Why Jews should receive Jesus Christ as Lord. <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, Okay, Ryan, thank you. You can go now. And I walked out of that classroom, and I was praying for Dr. Ember. He died within a year of reading that paper um, on the floor at Ross Hall in the University of Arkansas after giving a lecture. And I thought to myself, um, I remember walking into the world religion department and I was asking about Dr. Ember. I loved him. I cared for him. We were friends. Uh, he did a great job on helping me understand religion, world religion. And um, I remember thinking, praise the Lord. I wrote him a paper. Lord willing, I get to heaven and Dr. Ember's there, you know. And uh, we don't know what happens, but what we do know is that we can look at the life of Jesus and that we can study it and learn it. And I, that's my hope and prayer for you. Um, I do want to highlight to you just for a moment Jesus in comparison to, to Buddha and Muhammad, just so you'll have a, a clear understanding. The three largest religions in the world, really, it, the first is Christianity. There's 2.5 billion, billion with a B, 2.5 billion followers who say they follow Jesus or they uh, believe in the teachings of Jesus. Right behind Christianity is Islam, and it's very, very much fast, fastly growing. And 1.8 billion followers follow the teachings of Muhammad. Um, behind that would be Buddhism, and there's only 450 million. I mean, that's a lot, but 450 million followers uh, in Buddhism. But the uniqueness about Jesus in comparison to Muhammad or Buddha is Jesus was sinless. Muhammad wasn't sinless. Buddha wasn't sinless. Jesus was without sin, no sin. Another difference is, is that Jesus claimed to be God. Those guys did not. Um, they had teaching and 
uh, pathways. And for example, in Buddhism, there's the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths. And you've got to kind of follow and adhere to these things. And if you follow those within the teaching of Buddhism, you can achieve what we would know and understand as salvation, eternal life. Um, and, and, and the interesting thing with Islam, there's a lot of rules and a lot of regulations. And if you want to experience salvation in the Islamic faith, you have to be very rigid and structured to follow these different things. For example, you pray five times a day. Um, and Jesus, the, the message of Christianity is very different. Um, salvation is not something that you work towards, that you got to work at. Salvation, the Bible says, is by grace through faith. It's a gift to receive. And this is very different than uh, many of the other religions out there. <clears throat> I think most uniquely about Jesus is Jesus had 300 plus prophecies about his life, his death, and his burial, resurrection. Mohammed and Buddha, they have zero prophecies. Not a single one. Uh, most important about Jesus in comparison to Muhammad and Buddha would be this, is Jesus claimed to be God. He goes to the cross prophetically fulfilling Scripture's exact details from his life, his birth, his life, and his uh, cross and the resurrection. Uh, and he raises again. Muhammad died and never raised again. Buddha died, never raised again. Jesus Christ is the only one. And so the, the, the quest for truth goes on. Jesus claimed to be God. Others did not. Uh, Jesus was raised from the dead. Others did not. And, and Jesus is God. And so what we're going to see in this teaching series, the name and fame of Jesus, is there is a name. And it is above all names. And his name is Jesus Christ. This name is the name that we gather in the name of Jesus. It's the name above all names that should be a, for us a responsibility for the fame of his name to go out throughout the world. And so my hope and prayer is in this uh, time of uh, getting ready for Easter is that over the next 40 plus days or so that you would prepare yourself with a deep commitment to learn more about Jesus Christ and to make him famous. Among your friends, among your family, you take your responsibility, you learn about Jesus, and then you extend that message of Jesus. That's what Easter is all about. It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to study the passage. What an incredible opportunity. Uh, John 17, it's a Thursday night going into Friday early morning. Some scholars have said that this prayer that Jesus is going to be teaching us, it didn't take necessarily place in the upper room, in that room in, in Jerusalem. It perhaps took place on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. To me, it's not a big deal where you want to try to place this, but it is Thursday night, perhaps early into the morning, into Friday, and things are definitely accelerating towards the cross. And so Jesus has given his speech. If you'll look in John chapter 16, open your Bibles. John chapter 16, verse 33, I want to give you the context. Jesus has been doing what's called the upper room discourse. He's been giving a, a, a farewell speech, a message to his disciples, the private instruction before he departs from earth. And he says this, it's the closing out of this long discourse. He's talking about the Holy Spirit uh, most recently. In verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. 
And in this world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the what? The world. And that's a, that's a declaration of victory. And so it's with that being said, he's declared, I am the name above all names. I am the one who overcomes this entire world. So it's a powerful closing statement. And then John, the apostle in the room, the nearest and dearest to Jesus, writes these few words, and then the rest of this, John chapter 17, is Jesus. John writes this. uh, Look at verse 1. He says, when Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So John's writing. He's talking about Jesus praying um, and said, help me out, Father, the hour has what? Come. The first thing we're going to see is that the hour has come. In other words, what, what that means is, is this phrase is repeated uh, five different times in John 16. It means it, the culmination, the climax is here. The theme of the gospel of John is the work of Jesus Christ. Help me out. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have what? Eternal life or everlasting life. Uh, the cross, it, it's a symbol of shame and it's a, a, a major painful a thought process for the, whole, for the disciple. From man's perspective, the hour has come is terrifying. But from God's perspective, a divine perspective, it's the message and the story of God's grace and glory. The victory. That we can find forgiveness. The power of sin has been broken. Uh, the, the power of Satan has been broken at the cross. And so the hour has come, is what he says. And then he makes this request. He says, glorify your son. Look what it says. Glorify your son. Make much of me, is what he's saying. What, what does he mean there? What he means is, is, God, I need you to sustain me and strengthen me in the suffering, in the whipping, in the beating, in the mocking, in the scoffing, in the crucifying. I need you to sustain me in the suffering. Glorify me in that. Glorify me in the process of being all throughout this sacrifice I'm going to make the resurrection that is going to happen, the restoration of returning to glory. Because Jesus, the Bible says, eternally existed. Look in your Bible, uh, verse 5, and Jesus proves the deity of Christ even right here. He's, he's trying to remind him. This is a prayer. He's praying for himself. He says, and now, Father, look at verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before. Help me out. The world, what? existed. You know what this means? He's saying, I want the glory I I had before. I want that back in a whole new way. Because when Jesus came to earth, he took on the incarnation. That is human flesh. At Bethlehem, Jesus wasn't uh, the beginning of his existence. No, Jesus eternally existed, ladies and gentlemen. This is not just a man that uh, grew into divinity and walked into godhood. This is not. This is not that. Jesus eternally existed. Jesus was there in the beginning, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and Jesus is the Word. And in Genesis, 
and let us make man in our image. That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to come home. He's making a request for himself. I think this is a message for you and me is that it's okay to pray for ourselves, but we need to pray with a mindset that we're not just praying for ourselves so that our needs can be met, but pray with a purpose. And so what's the purpose in his request? Look what it says in the text. It says, you're gonna, I want you to glorify me so that I may glorify you, that he might give glory to God as well. The, the, the prayer is, is, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify, help me out, you. Let's try that again. That the Son may glorify so that's his, that's his reason. I want to glorify you. I want to glorify you. I want to glorify you on the cross. He looks up and he says when he's being crucified and all the people that mocked and scoffed and whipped and uh, beat him and crucified him, he says, Father, forgive them. He's bringing glory to the Father. Um, sometimes, you know, um, you may ask, what is the purpose of life? I, when I was a a young father to my kids. I've got two twins that are 19. I've got a 12-year-old, and I taught them early on um, questions and answers to the Christian faith. And uh, so I redid uh, my, in my own efforts the Westminster Catechism, and the, the catechism is basically questions and answers about the Christian faith. It's very helpful. And the first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? That's kind of complex. Try that on a six-year-old. What is the chief end of man? Well, Father. Uh, in other words, a more simple phrase to do it is like GCU, Grand Canyon University says, find your purpose. So here's, here's what you under, need to understand as a Christian when you're praying for yourself. You need to understand your purpose. What's your purpose? What's the chief end of man? The answer is you're to glorify God and you enjoy him forever. The ambition for the Christian is not just simply glory for yourself. The ambition for the Christian is to bring glory to God. And Jesus is praying for himself, but he prays for himself with a purpose of, I want to glorify you. I want your name magnified. You do it. You get the glory. And that is the purpose of life, the chief end of man. Your purpose is to bring glory to God in your uh, workplace, in your home, in every area. It, you do not bring God more glory when you do uh, a church activity versus just a regular work activity. You bring glory to God when you do you in the context of your life and say, I'm going to glorify God in the midst, in every season, every circumstance I'm in. Whether I've got plenty or whether I've got little, I'll bring glory to God. Amen? That's the purpose what Jesus is praying for, and he prays, look at verse 2, he prays with authority. He says, since you've given him authority over all flesh. In other words, what he's saying is, is you've put me in a place of authority, God. I'm going to exercise that. Jesus is over all mankind. Uh, Jesus will serve as the perfect substitute on the cross. He is the perfect human being. He is where Adam failed, Jesus steps up and fulfills the calling of mankind and completely fulfills the law. And he earns our righteousness, and he has authority over all people. And the Bible tells us that every person on the planet will face Jesus as judge. 
Even the believers will face Jesus. He has authority. He is the judge. According to John 5, he was given authority to execute judgment. And what that means is you're not the judge. Christians are not the judge. Uh, Jesus is the judge. The Holy Spirit, I taught you earlier, is the prosecutor. He's the one who convicts. The Christians are to be witnesses, but Jesus is the judge. He has authority over all people. And their Bible tells us that Christians will have to give account to the judge, Jesus, at the Bama seat, the judgment seat of Christ. It's not to get into heaven, but it's to realize, like, okay, this is how I lived. This is good. Should have done this different. This is great. But there will be a judgment for those that are unbelievers, and their destiny will not be heaven. Their destiny will be hell. And the responsibility will be is you did not accept me. You rejected me, and here is the final judgment. Jesus gives the reason for his prayer and saying, you gave me authority, God, uh, and here's, here's what I'm uh, going to do. He's going to give eternal life. Look what it says in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Right? He, he is praying because he wants to glorify God in and through his life. He has the authority to pray. He is praying, too, with purpose to bring glory to God, and he's praying because he wants to bring eternal life. Eternal life is not something that you earn. Eternal life is something that you receive. Eternal life is not something that is just about knowing about God. Eternal life is about knowing God personally. And then verse 4, Jesus finishes the work. We see, look what it says. He says, hey, here's another reason. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In other words, what he says in, in verse 4, he says, I finished it. I, 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 I did the miracles. I kept in time with your exact timing. I've accomplished, I've trained these disciples. These guys have been instructed. They're ready to go, to go plant churches. Uh, I've done everything you've needed to me to do. The hour has come. And then we transition in verses 6 through 19, and we're going to see that Jesus is not going to, he's going to transition from praying for himself, and he's going to pray for disciples. And I believe this transition is, um, I think we have an outline we'll put up on the screens in just a moment, but I believe that this transition is absolutely practical and application for you and me, um, but it's praying for his disciples, and the praying for the disciples uh, would be, in the immediate context, if you're just reading the scripture, it's the guys in the room. And you say, well, what about me? Well, I think all of this will apply to you um, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple. But most specifically, what will apply to you is next week, because Jesus prays for future generations of people that will believe what Jesus taught and what the disciples taught. And next week, we're going to see Jesus actually praying for the church. So this is really cool. We get to see today what Jesus prays about himself. Number two, what he prays for the disciples. So there's really... Um, He's going to make a, a request uh, about, uh, you know, praying three different things for them, but he's going to give the report. So let me just read verses 6 through 8, and uh, we'll jump down and, and see verse 9, some of the beginnings of these absolute requests that he's making. And, and so in verse 6, he, he kind of is giving this report. He says, you know, I've manifested your name. I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. 
a couple things I just want to point out is before Jesus makes his request for the disciples is that it says manifested. That really means to, to make known or to make clear. It's the same Greek word where we get the word that connects to the concept of, boy, I had an epiphany. And if I said that to you, I had an epiphany about something, you'd be like, wow, Pastor Ryan, nice big word. Um, but you would understand what I meant most likely. I had a revelation. I'm, it, it became clear to me. The light turned on. What Jesus says is he's given the report before he makes the request. He says, I've manifested your name. The, the name idea is not just uh, Yahweh or anything like that. The name idea actually refers to the nature. In other words, I've revealed the nature of who you are. And he did this, I think, uh, perhaps through uh, much of the teaching. Uh, I think of specifically what could be at play here is the statements that he made concerning the I am statements in John's gospel. Um, in Exodus, God's name is I am. We read that. I am who I am. And then Jesus reveals God to us th that whatever we need, he is that to us. When he said, I am the bread of life, he was speaking to the hungry. When he said, I am, uh, I am the way, he's speaking to the lost. When he said, I am uh, the light of the world, he's speaking to the spiritually blind. And, and so Jesus is revealing him, himself, he's revealing the Father, and then he reveals the Father, and the word Father is mentioned 53 different times in, in John 13 through 17, 122 times in John's gospel. It's a mega theme. Jesus is revealing the Father. It's like when I go back to Arkansas to visit my friends and family, people don't know me anymore like they know my dad. He's, he's the famous one. I'm not. I left there 20, uh, tw uh, felt, felt, feels like 20 years. It wasn't 20 years ago. It was 12, 13 years ago. But when I go back and come into town, they'll say, oh, you're Dr. Rice's son. And I sometimes will introduce myself with my dad in mind. Um, the father theme is huge, and it, the father theme is very important as a Christian that you understand you have a good heavenly father, despite if you had a bad earthly father. You are fathered by God. And Jesus is giving this report to the father, and he gives report as well to how the disciples were doing. Look at verse 6. He says uh, that they have kept your word. In other words, they've done a good job. He continues in verse 7 through 8. Look what it says. Uh, that they've believed and received. And it says, Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and they've come to know the truth, and I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So in this first little section, when Jesus is praying for the disciples, he actually gives a report about how things are going. They're doing good, and here's what I did for you. Remember that. And then it transitions into three different requests. The first we're going to see is unity. Um, verses 9 through 12, if you'll read with me, he says, uh, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me. Help me out that they may be, what? One, even as we are, what? One. There's the unity call. 
he continues and he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction. Um, that is a reference to Judas, who, by the way, was never a true believer. He says that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the first thing we see is this prayer request for unity. Jesus prays for unity. Um, and how many of you would say that, man, when you look around at churches today, we've got far more churches in our country than we do Starbucks, and Starbucks is on every corner. And uh, how many of you would say, man, boy, when I see the church, I just see unity everywhere. Um, Jesus said to pray for it. It's pretty important. What would this mean? What did he mean by unity? He didn't mean uniformity. He meant uh, that there would be a diversity and a unity that would be able to connect together. Specifically, I believe he meant actually the Jews and the Gentiles. There'd be ethnic unity. That the church would not just be one ethnic people. I mean, that's very clear. I mean, the Apostle Peter gets reprimanded and has to be revealed like, okay, wait a second. It's the gospel and the church is for everybody. In the church today, there should be ethnic diversity. There should be educational diversity. Uh, there should be economic diversity at some level. And the common ground that we have as believers in Christ, it's not our income, it's not our ethnicity, it's not our education, it's Jesus. Amen? Uh, Jesus is the head, and we are the body. And every body, every part of the body is a little different. The hand is different than the foot, but we're all united and tied together by the head. And Jesus is emphasizing the essentials of unity. He's praying for unity. Um, the problem with unity is that a lot of times that there's, uh, there's issues that we fight over that we shouldn't be fighting over. Um, I've seen it even in this church where people will fight and complain about a certain way that we do things. Pastor wears jeans. I'm not wearing jeans today. Um, uh, the, the style of worship, we'll fight over that. These are what I call open-handed issues. Every church is different. The guy who wears a suit and a tie across the street, praise be to God, he wears a suit and tie. Um, the church down the road, they don't have drums. No reason to fight over that. The Bible doesn't prohibit that. The Bible doesn't tell us that we have to dress a certain way to come to church. These are the open-handed issues called styles of worship. There's open-handed issues that we shouldn't fight over. There's a lot of different ways to run the church. Church governance, that's an open-handed issue. How many elders do you have? Do you have 12? Do you have six? Do you have three? Uh, do pastors and elders do the exact same thing in the church? Everybody does it different, but we fight over it. Or how about end times? Is Jesus coming for the church? Is he going to rapture in the beginning of the tribulation, midpoint of the tribulation, after the, uh, after the tribulation, or not at all? I don't think it's worth fighting over. The agreement needs to be Jesus is coming back. Amen? And so what we do is we fight over open-handed issues and we struggle with unity in the church. And here's what we should fight over is the closed-handed issues. You say, give me some historical context. Well, you fight over the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at uh, groups like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, um, these are cultish groups that actually will divide the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy, help me out, Spirit. And they'll say one of those individuals is not actually God. Well, guess what? Those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. Doesn't mean we need to go after them and fight them physically, but what it means is you need to separate. 
Um, give me another uh, example of a closed-handed issue that's worth fighting over. How about uh, salvation by grace through faith? How about, historically speaking, that's what's called the Protestant Reformation. Luther protested against the Catholic Church saying, guess what? Salvation is for all people uh, who can uh, place their faith in Jesus Christ, and salvation is a gift by God's grace. It's not something you earn. Amen? So those are things worth fighting over. What's another thing worth fighting over? The authority of God. If this book doesn't hold the authority of Scripture and you're going to churches that don't teach the authority of Scripture, you should leave as fast as you can. If churches aren't preaching Jesus or talking about Jesus or teaching about Jesus, you should leave as fast as you can. If churches are belittling the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, those are closed-handed issues that are worth fighting over. And so we've got to learn the difference between open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. And so Jesus prays for unity. The second thing he prays for is joy, though. I love this. He prays for joy. He wants them to be unified, but he wants them to be joyful. Look what it says in verse 12. This is a common theme by Jesus. He thinks that Christians should be joyful people. Verse 13, he says, but now I'm coming to you. He's praying. Remember, he's praying to God the Father. Uh, Now I'm coming to you in these things that I speak in the world everything he's taught, that they may, they may have my what? Let's try that again. That they may have my joy. joy. Whose joy does he want them to have? His joy. John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said after he taught about the vine and the branches, he says, here's my goal. My plan is that you have the joy that I have. It's in me, and I pray that you have it. And then throughout John 14, 15, and 16, he uses the word, I want the joy that I have to be in you, and I want it to be to the full. The Greek word is plero, filled up, complete. What's the idea here? These disciples are in the midst of their sorrow because everyone, all of them are going to be, they're already experiencing sorrow, you know? In the midst of their sorrow, they, the prayer is for Jesus is, Lord Jesus, I know these guys are going through incredible hardship. They're going to see me crucified within hours. They're going to, they're going to think uh, all Israel is lost. I was the hope for them. I was supposed to be their redeemer. They don't see it now. I'm coming back. I want you in their sorrow. I want you to turn that into joy. I pray that they would have joy. They'd have it to the fullest. That's the kind of prayer. And the application, I think, for you and me is to understand that the Christian life is always a life with sorrow, but with joy. Every day in the Christian life, there's sorrow. Some of you are here today, and you're stuck in your sorrow. Okay, I understand, and you need to get help and get get through that. But Jesus had already taught us last week, we learned that he's going to turn sorrow into joy. The cross that was the symbol of shame will become the symbol of peace and the symbol of hope and the symbol of forgiveness. He wants to turn the pain into a promise of blessing. And so this joy is the goal. Jesus prays for that. Jesus, I think you could apply this to you and say it applies to me too, that God wants me to have joy in my life. That no matter what you're going through, there needs to be a sense of joy. You need to hold on to that. 
And then the last thing we'll see is sanctification. Uh, sanctification is the process of becoming holy, but sanctification is, uh, means, the word means, it to be set apart. And so Jesus is praised for, he prayed first for unity, second, he prays for joy, and third, he's praying for sanctification, being set apart, made holy and strong uh, in the world. And so we'll see what it says here. Verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, which is important, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. In other words, we're different. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's, he's not saying, Lord, snatch them up, rapture them now. He says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world as I'm not of the world. Verse 17, help me out. Sanctify them in what? The truth. Okay, well, what is the truth? He says it. Your word is truth. What is the word? The word is all the law. The word is all the scriptures. Now, that is what he's been teaching. That's what he's fulfilled. Sanctify them, set them apart, make them different, grow them in holiness. That's what he's saying. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then he continues, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified. Help me out in what? Truth. So how do you get sanctified? How do you grow in holiness? Two ways I think that Jesus revealed. Number one, it's the truth. How do you, how do you grow in your faith? How do you get sanctified? How do you get set apart? How do you become different? Truth. If the truth the Bible says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you, help me out, free. You're to live as free people. You are not a victim to the sin. You're not a victim to the world around you. You're not a victim to the circumstances. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. We are in a post-truth culture. Truth is relative to most people. Relative to, to uh, truth is absolute. Truth comes from here. Jesus is the truth. This is the truth in which you live by. You say, did Jesus say that? Yes, he said that. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Amen? How do you grow in holiness? The Bible. Read your Bible. Why? Because the Bible will give you the truth to figure out how to make decisions about your, about your life. How, what kind of person do I want to date? What kind of person do I want to marry? What kind of job decision do I need to make in this season of my life? How do I respond to suffering? How do I navigate through being betrayed? How do I navigate through hardship? How do I navigate in poverty? How do I navigate in prosperity? How do I live? What does God want for me? How does he forgive me? How do I work through sorrow? How do I work through shame? All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness. Amen? So this is your guide, my friends. Election season's coming. I don't think we're going to see a wonderful unity of the church all around the country. I think there's going to be division everywhere. You know what churches are going to grow, though? Churches that say the Bible is the authority, the Bible is the truth, you guys don't know truth. We know truth. Amen? Watch what happens. Watch what happens. 
Churches that teach truth will grow in leaps and bounds. Why? Man, because the truth sets you free. So how do you grow in holiness? According to Jesus, he prayed for his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. These guys would go on to write Bible. They need it. Uh, they're going to be sanctified. They're going to learn the Old Testament scriptures. The power of the Holy Spirit's going to come over them in such a way. Peter would say that they felt carried along, not by the will of man, but by the inspiration and the power of the Holy Spirit. They recorded the things that you and I read called the Bible. Sanctify them in truth. You need a better marriage? Get into God's Word. You need a better relationship with the person you're dating? Get into God's Word. You need some good decisions about your business and your future? Get into God's Word. You need to learn how to become a person of love? Get into God's Word. You need to grow in your forgiveness and get over your bitterness? Get into God's Word. Sanctify. Number two, how do you grow and get sanctified? You get sanctified through hardship. Notice what Jesus said. He goes, I'm not going to take them out of the world, but I'm actually going to send them into the world. That's different. I am completely against the idea of the people that want to, as Christians, when uh, the end of the world idea is coming, they retreat and they isolate and they go bunker down. Literally during Y2K, I had some Christian friends that were digging bunkers and going into hiding. That's weird, man. Sorry. What did Jesus say about the Christian? Snatch them out of the world. It's messed up. No, he said, I'm sending them into the world. Literally, like you're supposed to be in the world. You're supposed to be amongst lost people. Uh, The Bible says that you're light of the what? World. Let's try that again. You're light of the what? World. You're also salt of the what? Earth. Well, how does salt have an impact? Salt won't have an impact unless it has contact. You say, hang on, explain that to me. Uh, well, just say, you know, you grill a steak, and you're like, boy, there's not a lot of flavor on this. I'm going to grab a little bit of salt, not a lot, and sprinkle it on. Now, what happens? That salt has contact, and it begins to transform that steak to bring out all the flavor. So what does that mean? That means that you are supposed to be in the world, that you're supposed to have contact Unbelievers don't get saved, generally speaking, without some Christian having contact with them to share and to show the love of Jesus Christ. Um, God wants to use you. Does this world going to have trouble? Yes, he just said that in in John chapter 16, verse 33. I've told you this, that in this world you're going to have tribulation, but in me you're going to have peace. So guess what? In this world you're going to have trials, you're going to have tribulation. Guess what? As a Christian it's getting harder, not easier Guess what? Raising kids is getting harder, not easier. Guess what? Schools are getting harder, not easier. So guess what? Can you have peace? Yes, you have peace, not in the world, but you have peace in Jesus. And guess what? The process of the pain is actually going to produce something in you. That's what Jesus was saying. Don't take them out of the world. No, 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 no. Don't take them out of the world. I'm sending them into it. You're not, as a Christian, called to just come and sit at church, sit on Sundays, sit in a small group. You're called as a Christian to be sent, not to sit. We have that dog group showing up, you know, and I'm a dog trainer too, and I'm not training dogs at the church, but anyway. So the command, sit. Dog ought to sit. That's not the Christian. The Christian is Let's go. 
Let's go. That's the call that I give to my dogs when I'm unloading them from the truck and into the field. Let's go. And they're through the field. That's your job. Don't sit. You're sent. That's what Jesus said. Amen? You're sent. So, what does this mean? It means that you, have, you should have contact with unbelievers that are of questionable character. Yeah, I said that. You should have friends that are deeply questionable in their lifestyle and their choices and their attitude and their beliefs. Be their friend at some level. You say, well, why would I do that? Well, Jesus did that. Prostitutes love Jesus. The drunks, they love Jesus. Uh, the tax collectors, the sinners, they love Jesus. The gluttons, they love Jesus. He spent time with them. Why? Because you have to have contact for there to be impact. Amen? There's got to be contact for there to be impact. So hardship will actually create something in you. Some of you are going through a very difficult time, and you may say to me, Pastor Ryan, I feel like God is mad at me, and He's the one punishing me. I would say to you, I don't think so. Um, that's what's the, the, the theological category is sanctification. God uses trials and hardships to help you to grow into holiness. And some of you say, it don't feel like sanctification. It feels like spanctification. I feel getting spanked by God. God's not spanking you. You're making choices and decisions, and the life is tough. Jesus said it. Hey, man, listen. In this world, there's going to be tribulations. But in me, there's peace. And, and so the, the sanctification will produce something in you. This is why James, the brother of Jesus, would say, hey, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces something really good. You've heard it said, what doesn't kill you makes you what? Yeah. Boy, be strong. You know, I think the church showed this strength during COVID. Our giving was incredible, and we reopened, and we stayed shut too long. We opened up a lot faster than most. Um, but the church here showed itself in its strength. Um, it, was, it was hard. There was people that died. There was people, many people were sick. But this church did a great job. And that hardship, I said earlier in the pandemic, is we have two choices. We get real creative or we get crushed. Which one do you want to do? Lay down and sorrow or get creative and figure out how to redo things? So how do we apply this? There's three ways, and I'll wrap up. Very simple. Number one, we need to be, cultivate unity in the church. So please don't fight with me. Please don't fight with people in our church about non-essentials. Don't fight with people in our church about the open-handed issues. If you want to fight about the style of worship and all that, my response would be, and our staff are trained too, is, hey, there's a lot of churches. You can go down the road. If you, if you want to sing a cappella, praise the Lord, <laughs> go to an a cappella church. It's okay. If you want to go to a church where it's all business people and everybody wears a suit and tie because they honor God better when they do that, then that was sarcasm, just so you know. Um, if, 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 if that's you, that's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. I think it's awesome. I love the different churches, but however, the Lord wants unity, not uniformity. And so the encouragement, number one, is, is let's cultivate unity in the church. How do we do that? I'll tell you how we do that. 
especially with an election season coming, and there's a lot of different ideas and opinions. Would you let this place the authority over you? Would you let this shape your vision for life and your value system and inform you how to vote? If this is king, Scripture, Jesus Christ is king of the Scripture, and you live under this, guess what? I promise you your marriage will be better. I promise you you will be able to navigate through hard times. I promise you you're going to be operating and actually be able to preserve and hold to unity in this church and good churches and with other believers if this is king. If you're like this, you're going to stand and you're going to be on top of the Scriptures, guess what? You're not going to have unity. You're going to be fighting all the time because you are over the Scriptures. You are, you are placing yourself over the authority of God's Word. And so you have a choice to make as a church. What do you want to do? How are we going to cultivate unity in our church? I'll tell you how. When the Word of God is, when you surrender to the authority of Scripture, then we're unified. Amen? Uh, this is why in the Protestant Reformation, the, the pulpit became the center point of the church, the preaching of God's Word, when prior to that, it was actually communion. The Word becomes central. Amen? A couple other practical points on how we uh, navigate unity in our church is uh, we need to make sure we're agreeing upon the right leaders in the church. That we need trusted leaders that we love and we trust, and you have an opportunity to do that. I'll share with you. Um, our elder team has nominated a gentleman by the name of Ed Black to be the next elder. And uh, yeah, you can celebrate. If a church can't be unified around the leaders and it's divided, the church is going to fall. One of the most, the most important marks of a long-term impacting church is actually the long-term commitment of the leadership. The number one thing in a church, of course they need to be teaching the Bible, all that, um, but it's the leadership. Ed is an incredible man, um, and I'm asking for unity with you. If you feel like you can't submit to his leadership, uh, he meets the New Testament qualifications out of Titus and Timothy. Um, if you feel like you can't, then you, you let us know. Uh, maybe if we missed anything, we're open to it. Um, if you think he doesn't meet those New Testament qualifications, I'd say you might be smoking something. I think he's solid. Um, his wife is amazing. They've got an incredible um, marriage and ministry together. And if you know him, uh, you already love him. So hopefully in a few weeks, we'll confirm together as a church, unify together as staff, unify together as elders and say, this is our man for the next position on the elder team. And we're excited to do that. So be praying for Ed and be thinking about that. And if there is any significant objection, make sure you let us know, but keep your name on whatever email you send or whatever note you write and drop in our boxes. And you can't say, I didn't like his shirt. I think he's, you know, he's, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I just don't, I don't like the way he dresses. You know, that's, that's a style of worship. That's a non-essential, open-handed issue. We're not going there. Um, another way you can support the church and cultivate unity in the church is actually supporting us in our efforts to help plant a new church. Uh, Matt Rose and his wife, Hannah, they're starting a new church next Sunday and in Buckeye, basically California. And 
Um, it's an hour away, and myself and several other pastors in our network, our Vision Arizona network, are going over to support them. We have our Thursday night congregation. A lot of those folks are going to go over. And in fact, if you want to be a part of um, the grand opening of this church, we're holding a special potluck on Thursday night. I would encourage you to be a part of it. Um, you can pull out your phone and snap that. Uh, we're going to have a good time to connect, and then we're going to talk about the grand opening of this new church. And so the church ought to unify around some things, the Word of God, the leadership, the mission. And starting churches is a big deal for us. So snap a photo of that if you would like. We'll leave it up for some time and uh, sign up, and we'd love to see you there. I'll be there Thursday night, and we'll have a good time. In closing, there's two other points I want to make for us about how we can um, increase and apply Jesus' prayer is the second thing I wanted to say to you is that you need to try to seek joy in Jesus. In other words, don't try to find your happiness in the happenings. So don't try to find your happiness in the bank account. Don't try to find your happiness in your relationships. Find your happiness in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that's where joy truly comes from. He said that over and over and over again. Joy comes from me. Um, so seek joy in Jesus Christ, I would say specifically over the next 40 days. Count it as a journey through the Gospel of John. Be reading in the Word of God and the Gospel of John. As we approach Easter and then move past Easter, we're going to finish the Gospel of John. And we've been in it for three years now. And so we're going to finish it up. And so journey with me with Jesus and get more joy in your life by studying the life of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, I would just say I want to encourage you to keep a mindset that what you grow through, whatever you go through. And the idea would be is that whatever you're going through, you need to be thinking, God, I want you to grow me through this. Your response needs to stop with the whining, stop with the complaining, and start with praying. Your, your mindset has got to shift from the woe is me, oh my God, the whole world's falling apart, to God saying, God, in the middle of all this, you've already promised that you're going to grow me in this. Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. That is very difficult to do. I remember going through a significant hardship. My son wrapped his arm around me and he said, Dad, God must really love you. And I said, be quiet, son. What's the point? The point is, listen, you better grow through whatever you go through. Don't miss it. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I'll read this passage of Scripture to encourage you. Uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, Not only this, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces something. It produces perseverance. We said it earlier, whatever doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Suffering produces perseverance. You can learn how to stick with it if you go through the suffering. And then it produces character. And character is what, is what your life should all be about. Character is the things that make you who you are. A person of integrity, a person of love, a person of faithfulness. Character is so important in your life. Be a man of character. Be a woman of character. Character is your strength. And that character turns into hope to help you understand that you can keep growing through whatever you go through. Amen? Lord, we pray for the time in communion that we would be reminded of the suffering of the cross and the sorrow 
that the disciples faced and how in this world there's trials and tribulations, but yet at the cross we find hope and healing and forgiveness. And so, Father, I pray now in the time as we come before you, whatever sin needs to be confessed, it be confessed, uh, Father, and there would be a, a fast rush to the cross and say, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your hope. Thank you for the healing. And we pray, God, that you would fill us up with courage as we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. At this point in time, you can come down for communion, remembering it's for believers. The bread and the juice was sep- is a reminder of his body that was broken and his blood that was spilled. So you can come as you're ready.